This is Wednesday's Women, hosted by Caitlin and Taylor. We invite you to join us in a candid conversation about the roles of women in political organizing and beyond as we celebrate the centennial celebration of the 19th Amendment. We hope that you find this episode educational, entertaining, and the women we discuss inspiring. If you like what you hear, subscribe and share. Hello, and thank you for joining us today. We'll be covering Eleanor Roosevelt, someone who is very involved with the League of Women Voters. And because of this, I want to preface today's episode with a brief message about registering to vote. The League of Women Voters has an amazing online resource called vote411.org. Vote411 is a one-stop shop for election-related information. It provides nonpartisan information to the public with both general and state-specific information on the following aspects of the election process. Voter registration forms, registration deadlines, absentee ballot information, ballot measure information, early voting options, election dates, candidate guides, ID requirements per state, polling place locators, and general information such as how to watch a debate and how to research a candidate effectively. I highly recommend everyone go check out vote411.org. Make sure you're registered, and if you're not registered, you can get registered there. It's your one-stop shop. It really is. All right, so as you guys know from last week's episode, this is going to be probably my favorite episode of the summer because I love Eleanor Roosevelt, and so um, just to preface this episode, we wanted to say there is so much information on her because she was the longest serving first lady for 12 years. There is an abundance of information about her life online. She's written extensively about like her autobiography. So we are just touching like the big things about her, but we could talk for days about her. So if we forget something, we're sorry. We're just trying to make this episode not a bajillion years long. All right, so just to smack right into it. So Anna Eleanor Roosevelt was born October 11th, 1884. She was actually named after her mother, who was also named Anna. Um, she was born into a life of privilege. Uh, her father was Teddy Roosevelt's brother, so he was also president. So not only was she married to a president, but she was also the niece of a president. Um, so not only was he wealthy, but also their grandparents were very wealthy as well so there was wealth all the way through um she had housekeepers and from her housekeeper she learned french before she even learned english so she started out life uh as bilingual so that was a really big help for her especially whenever she went to school um however despite her privilege she did have a hard life because both of her parents were dead by the time she was 10 so she was orphaned at 10 years old with her other brother um, her father was an addict, he was an alcoholic, and he was addicted to some pain medication, which caused him to die because he had a fall, which caused him to go into a coma. And before that, her mother passed from diphtheria, and three months after her father had passed, um, her other brother had died as well. So a family of five went to two very quickly, um, and they ended up moving in with her grandparents. At 14 years old, she attended boarding school in London called Allenswood Academy. This school was an uh, all-girls academy. Uh, the headmistress of this academy was a radical feminist, and she tried to prepare the girls for lives of work instead of motherly duties. 
Um, a lot of times at this boarding school, they spoke only French. So a lot of the girls had to learn French like as they started, but she already knew Fran French. So the headmistress took a liking to her immediately and she actually gave her private lessons about government. So that she early on was already getting education about government and politics. So then in 1902, Eleanor and Franklin started dating. And I just wanted to say they are fifth cousins, so that's pretty gross, but it is what it is, I guess. Huh. I guess it's common in that time, but it it doesn't make it less gross. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And really, as much as we dislike it, his mother disliked it more. So she did not like Eleanor. And she sent her son on a tour of Europe to try to break them up, but that didn't work. And they ended up getting married in March of 19. Dedication. Truly, dedication. And it didn't work. Like, she still was like, I'm going to do it. Which, we're going to talk about how their relationship pans out. So, like, I think his mom kind of had the right idea about something going on, but I'm not sure. That's all speculation. They had six children together, and Eleanor did say in her autobiography that she found motherhood an unnatural thing and that she struggled to enjoy the role. Did love her children, she just didn't enjoy. Motherhood was not something she was a natural at. And I think it's important to mention this still happens today where women want a child, love the child very much, but they feel almost a slight disconnect from motherhood, not from the child itself just from like this idea of like have a kid stay home and back then postpartum depression I don't want to say it wasn't a thing but it wasn't recognized so like I would say based on the way she's described it she definitely struggled from postpartum depression with at least the first couple children and that does impact how you view motherhood absolutely um during the polio epidemic, FDR contracted the illness and became paralyzed from the waist down, which we're going to talk about further how that um, impacted her role as first lady and also her role as a political figure because she took over a lot of duties for him and was also his nurse. He was elected president in 1933. He was the longest serving president for 12 years, died during his fourth term at, and it was 1945 when he died and it was a stroke. Um, after he passed, she felt that she should end her public career. Um, but President Truman called her out to continue her service. He was like, you're not done. Come out, lady. Um, and so she did. And we're going to, Taylor's going to go through that with you guys. And then she died November 7th, 1962. Kennedy ordered the flags were to be placed at half mast whenever she passed, which I think just goes to show how much of a um, icon and public servant she was seen as. So she was iconic. There is speculation that when Roosevelt ran for governor and president, she was actually more popular than him, which is like a little awkward, but also a little deserved. One thing that isn't and another thing, like, I think it's really important to note that I think one of the reasons why she's more well-known, especially once he has polio, is that nobody saw him. Like, she did a lot of the public tours and conferences and things in his, on his behalf because he was just really sick. So, like, I think that's another reason why people usually get confused, like, with FDR and Theodore Roosevelt, 
not only because they're related, but also because uh, FDR was never seen. Yeah, and it is often said by many historians that he was very self-conscious. He was in a wheelchair after he recovered from polio, and that he was very self-conscious of this wheelchair, and he felt like it was a huge hindrance. So in this time, being disabled wasn't as easy. Like, I'm not saying being disabled is easy now, but like, most shops you can get your wheelchair into, or like, people aren't always looking at you and being like, oh my god, they're in a wheelchair. During this time, it was very much like you were in a wheelchair, they knew you were in a wheelchair from polio, and he was very self-conscious of that. So he ordered all of his photos to be taken from like here up, so that it, the lower part of his body and his wheelchair were not in frame. So he did hide out, basically, after he had polio, which is a huge discussion for his presidency, because he was so popular, and yet he was rarely seen. Yeah. Maybe that's the key. Maybe you just need to, like, get elected and hide out. <laughs> Don't say anything. Don't, <laughs> like, but one thing that isn't as frequently discussed is Eleanor Roosevelt as an LGBTQ plus ally. So she wasn't fighting for LGBTQ plus rights at this time, although I will say that really isn't even heard of until, like, the 60s. Um, Mostly because they didn't even have, like, a term for homosexuality or bisexuality. They just called them inverts, which is, like, not great. But there is a lot of discourse regarding her sexual orientation. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for this. Roosevelt, Eleanor Roosevelt was very close with members of the LGBTQ plus community. And that was rare at the time. Usually if, like, one of your friends was in the community you didn't talk about it and you were like oh no she's not dating that person they're just friends yeah they're like sisters which I think, um and eleanor was i think that's a big reason why a lot of people are not on record as on the uh lgbtq plus spectrum it's not that they weren't and it's not that homosexuality didn't exist it's just that people were not labeling themselves as it because they didn't want to get into public discourse yeah, and you also have to remember at this time, homosexuality was illegal in several states. I don't think it was illegal in all states, but it was legal in several states. Yeah. So you didn't want someone to be like, oh, they're, I guess then they would call them an invert, but you didn't want that. And so I'm not going to say she was an ally, ally in the same respect that the women who started Stonewall were an ally, but she was for the time an ally and I think that needs to be recognized um her she has several love letters to a female reporter that has caused speculation that they were likely in an affair um but at the very least she was known to respect and cherish fr cherish friendships with members of the community um, the former First Lady was a dedicated humanitarian chairing the committee that drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights for United Nations and promoted social activism both during and after her time in the White House. Um, one of the lines in the Declaration of Human Rights is everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of any kind. And so this is often referenced um, to apply to the LGBTQ plus community, not at this time, but today, it's like she was already paving the way for the world. 
Um, her marriage is somewhat upsetting because he's her cousin, but also he cheated on her with her own secretary in 1918. Um, so they weren't married super long and he was already like, I'm bored. Um, so she found love letters between them and that's how she knew they were cheating. Initially, she was like, oh, I want a divorce. I'm over it. I want a divorce. But then she thought about it a little bit and knew it would ruin both of their political careers. And frankly, I don't think she gave a shit about FDR's career. I think she was like, it's going to ruin my political career. Like, at this time, you didn't want to get divorced. So, yes, especially as a woman. FDR could probably recover she would struggle immensely. It would be seen as you couldn't make your marriage work. How are you going to make this position work? So she stayed with him, um, but their relationship definitely shifted to a marriage of love, to just a political union. And um, she was fairly frank about, like, we stayed together for our careers, not necessarily for our hearts. Um, Also, to make matters slightly worse, his mom owned their house at the time and told him he'd be disowned if he tried to divorce her. She was in charge of the entire family. Like, their their house was connected to her house, and it was joined by a sliding door. And so, like, she decided what the kids were going to be doing, like, her grandkids. She was deciding what, how their house would be decorated and stuff. Like, it's on record, Eleanor Roosevelt hated living there and was very happy when they moved but like not only did she dislike the union from the beginning but now she's forcing them to stay together you know it's just disgusting and when Eleanor Roosevelt moved in with her grandmother her grandmother was always very critical of her and actually when Eleanor left for boarding school she had an incredibly low self-esteem and some people think that's why Mary Silvestre her um the teacher who took an interest in her They think that's why she was so interested in Eleanor, because Eleanor was so bright, and yet she was so quiet, and she didn't want to speak out. Um, So she got freedom, and then she came back, and his mom was overbearing, constantly critical of her. And I do think that is something that caused that disconnect with her motherhood, because she didn't have a sense of, like, these are my kids. It was, these are our kids. Um, So they stayed together, and he ended the affair. but the um he didn't end contact with her she was at his bedside when he passed so um and i want to note that his daughter knew about their meetings the daughter whenever whenever she whenever he died eleanor roosevelt found out that this mistress was at his bedside and she was devastated and her daughter came to her and said, Mom, I knew about it. I helped arrange their meetings. And she felt such a sense of disloyalty towards her daughter and the fact that her daughter would help her father continue on this extramarital affair. So there is some evidence that they might not have been sexually, act, like sexually uh, having misconduct, I guess. At the time, it might have just been a romantic, um, emotional connection. But either way, she still felt very, um, I'm trying to think of the word. Disappointed. Disappointed, and she just felt like she was being left to dry, basically. Yeah, and I think, first of all, don't ever get your kids involved in your affair. Just don't. <laughs> but second of all, 
I think like it would hurt even worse because he promised to end the affair to keep the relationship together. Yes. Um, but Eleanor Roosevelt, who is a true badass, um, stuck with FDR and then it is thought that she had her own affair, which at the time wouldn't have been as wild because they had already agreed it was a political union and not a heart union. Um, but she met, while they were campaigning for the White House, she met a journalist, Lorena Hickok. And um, Lorena Hickok was actually the first woman to have her byline appear on the front page of the New York Times. So they initially met as reporter and interviewee, and Lorena Hickok interviewed her several times because she was so famous. Her husband's running for president. It, like, it wasn't weird that she was interviewing her. Through this interview, though, um, they developed this relationship. And I'm going to call it a relationship because whether they were intimate or not, they still had a relationship. They traveled together. They lived together. You know, I mean, be it a friendship or a romantic relationship, it's a relationship. So there were almost 4,000 letters between them, and they chronicle a fairly passionate romance. Um, so it started, the letters started in 1932. Um, one note from Eleanor Roosevelt says, oh, how good it was to hear your voice. It was so inadequate to try and tell you what it meant. Jimmy was near and I couldn't say je t'aime and j'adore as, as I long to do, but always remember I'm saying it and then I go to sleep thinking of you and repeating our little saying. So again, Eleanor Roosevelt learned French at an early age and je t'aime and j'adore means I love you and I adore you in French. Um, and so it said that they hung this, they said this line every time they hung up the phone that they often included it in their letters and that they would say it to each other depending on the audience. Yeah. Um, Lorena Hickok also lived in the White House when she wasn't touring. Yeah. So, I mean, Caitlin and I are good friends, but I've never just moved into her place. <laughs> it's important to note, too, in a lot of the letters that they did between each other, they were a lot more explicit than just saying, I love you and I adore you. Like for the one, Lorena Hickok sent a letter to her and was saying, I can't wait to see you again. I'm paraphrasing, but she said, I can't wait to see you again. Um, I can't imagine what we will say and what we will do. I remember the feeling of the northeast corner of your lips against mine. That was a phrase she said in one of them. And it's like, hmm. They often commented about kissing the corner of the mouth, which reading it, I was like, that's weird. Just kiss them on the mouth. Don't be like, don't half-ass kissing. Go in or don't do it. But um, there's also a lot of quotes about laying in each other's arms and missing the feeling in bedside. So it's definitely... Speculative. It, <laughs> it's definitely not a stretch to be like, oh, they were together. Um, it's important to note a lot of people want to say oh they were just good friends because of that like heteronormative state that we all live in to like it's unimaginable that two women could find love you know like they had to just be friends like nobody could think it possible that they were more than that so 
here's the thing if it were between her and a guy everyone would immediately say it was an affair so that's why i'm going with absolutely it's highly probable that they were if not intimately having an affair romantically having an affair um so there is speculation also about amelia Earhart. however there's no like letters or definitive proof they were just very close and amelia Earhart was kind of odd for the time so she didn't want to marry anyone she wanted to be like her own little free bird which i completely get but then like this man kept proposing and her friends were like if you keep turning it down you look weird and she's like i don't love him though so like i'm not gonna marry him and so he proposing finally she goes okay here's the deal i'll marry you but this is our prenup i don't love you I'm not going to be faithful to you, but you don't have to be faithful to me. They and if I don't, have a relationship. yeah. And if I don't love you at the end of this year, we're done. Like I'm over it. And so they got married following this prenup. This prenup was wild for the time. They were like, Oh my God. She said, she's going to have an affair. And I'm like, here's the thing. If you are both open about it and agreeing to it at the beginning, it's not that big of a deal. Like, if you and your partner are, like, we're open. If you want to have a wild one-night stand, that's fine. If I want to, that's fine. It's not really the same as an affair where, like, it's thought that we have this bond, we have this trust, we're not going to break it. But it still was wild at the time, even though affairs were fairly common, to hear someone say, I'm not being loyal to you. Don't be loyal to me. It's a waste. Um, but there's really no evidence other than Eleanor often flew with Amelia Earhart and she got her pilot permit. So people speculate, spend a lot of time with Earhart. Earhart was kind of odd, um, but not near the evidence they have for Hickok. Um, like I said, Roosevelt was also friends with several members of the LGBTQ plus community and was very open about this friendship and their respective relationships which was odd at the time. Usually you were like, oh no, they're not part of the community. They're just friends. And she was like, oh yeah, like they love each other. It's, it's chill. So two, a couple famous instances are Nancy Cook and Marion Dickerman, Esther Lape and Elizabeth Fisher Reed, um, and Marie Suvestra, who was Roosevelt's childhood teacher and a great influence on her later thinking. Um, all of these were, involved in lesbian relationships so at the very least eleanor understood lesbianism which wasn't something everyone at the time could say like if you lived in a very rural conservative area during this time you may have never even known it was a thing because again they didn't have like a term for it they were just like oh it's not normal which isn't true but it's fine <laughs> Marie Silvestre founded Le Rouge with her partner, Carolyn Dussault. When they separated, she funded the Allenswood Boarding Academy. So Marie Silvestre is French, and that's why the Allenwood Academy, even though it was in England, spoke mostly French. Um, so her and Dussault separated, and then Sylvester formed the Allenwood Academy with Paulina Samaya. I'm, I'm mispronouncing that, but I couldn't find how to pronounce it last night, so 
sincerest apologies to Paulina and her family. <laughs> um, Paulina was a former teacher at Les Rouge who would become a teacher at Allenwood Academy, as well as Sylvester's long-term partner. Um, the most famous pupil Sylvester ever taught at Allenwood was Eleanor Roosevelt. And as Caitlin said, Sylvester took a special interest in Roosevelt, who learned to speak French fluently and gained a lot of self-confidence that she was lacking when she came. Um, Roosevelt wanted to continue at Allenwood, but in 1902 was summoned home by her grandmother. Um, and that's really when she made her social debut. Um, even though she left, Roosevelt and Sylvester maintained correspondence until March 1905 when Sylvester died. And after Sylvester's death, Eleanor placed Sylvester's portrait on her desk and brought her letters with her. So this was fairly common for Eleanor to do. Um, she also had Lorena Hickcock's picture on her desk, as well as all of her letters kept there. Um, Nancy Cook was the secretary of the Women's Division of the State Democratic Committee um, and actually held that position for 19 years. She held key responsibility in Al Smith and Franklin Roosevelt's gubernatorial and presidential campaigns. Um, Cook and Dickerman, um, Cook's longtime partner, became frequent guests of the Roosevelt's, so it implies that they both knew, like, they're together. FDR, um, during his time as president, I believe, was called upon to actually crack down on homosexuality in the Navy, and he kind of just stepped back from it. He wasn't, like, as hard on it as they wished, and so one of the operations they launched, they asked the Navy men to try and coax one of their fellow Navy men to bed with them to see if that Navy man was homosexual. And so like, it's just really wild to read that. And they're like, try to lure your friends into bed with you. The fact that the American people at the time were more concerned about that than like, I don't know, fighting the war. <laughs> um, fighting the war, the fact that STDs ran rampant through the military and really always have, um, just wild. <laughs> Priorities are not really our strong suit. No, they aren't. Um, so the three women, Cook, Dickerman, and Eleanor, with FDR's encouragement, actually, built Stone Cottage at Valkill on the banks of Falkill Creek. Um, Cook and Dickerman made this their home, and Eleanor had her own room, but she didn't really spend the night a whole lot. Um, Cook was an expert woodmaker and made all the furniture to furnish the house. The towels, the linens, and various household items were actually monogrammed EMN with their initials. Um, so there is some speculation that perhaps they were in a polyamorous relationship just because of how close they were, but there really isn't anything um, super strong to back that up. We just know they were good friends and um, Cook and Dickerman were in a relationship. Yeah, we supported it. Yeah. Whether or not so, involved, we supported it. Yeah, she was comfortable with it. She had no problem staying with them, though she didn't stay um, in Valkyrie a whole lot. They did stay with them at the White House occasionally. Um, so Cook helped start Valkyrie Industries, whose daily operation she managed until the business closed in 1936. Um, and it was just a furniture production company. That's what they did. Cook adored woodworking, and so that's what um, they were close until Hickok 
began to become closer to Eleanor, Hickok and Dickerman couldn't hit it off. And so Eleanor did start to distance herself, likely at Hickok's request. Esther Lape was actually a founding member of the League of Women's Voters. Um, Eleanor Roosevelt, I'm not quite sure she was considered a founding member, but she was very involved following the 1920 um, passage of the 19th Amendment. And this is how she met Esther Lape. Um, Esther Lape, li Lape lived <laughs> with Elizabeth Fisher Reed, who was also a women's suffrage activist and Eleanor Roosevelt's lawyer and friend. Um, they lived in Greenwich Village. Roosevelt, who had met Lape through Reed, through the League of Women's Voters in 1920, rented an apartment for a time from them. Um, and the area they lived in was kind of hush-hush, but known as like, lesbians live here. So there were, I don't know how else to like delicately put it, um, but it was just like kind of accepted like that's where you moved because there weren't people being like, oh, you're going to hell. This is wrong. It was just like, oh, have you tried the new donut shop two blocks over? That was like a safe haven. Yeah. So um, she lived in this little block area. And many of these couples were actually involved in the women's suffrage movement and developed the close-knit circle that Roosevelt carried for a long time. Um, so this is where she met Marion Dickerman and Nancy Cook, Molly Dusin and Polly Porter, and Grace Hutchinson and Anna Rochester. So Lape and Reed and other Roosevelt's, other of Roosevelt's female friends were part of her support network for really her whole life. Um, the only exception to that would be Dickerman and Cook, who she was still friends with, she just wasn't as close with. So in 1910, in the 1910s, Elizabeth Reed was a women's suffrage activist and represented the ideology of the new woman, so she was most likely the most progressive out of the circle. Um, she represented the ideals of being financially independent, politically active, and socially emancipated. Um, she was active in both social and political causes and was an influential figure in the League of Women Voters in New York City. Um, Reed was a practicing attorney and she was the director of research for the American Foundation, of which her partner Lake was the director. So these women were all very prominent and generally people would just not talk about their partnerships. Or like I said, be like, oh, they're just really good friends. They bought a house together. They only have one bedroom in the house. <laughs> it's fine. I don't care what um, anyone says. I believe that she was at least bisexual because I mean, literally uh, Hancock gave her a ring and she wore it publicly. Like there's just so many things going on with at least their relationship. You can't tell me there wasn't I don't know. It's fishy. No, I completely believe the um, affair between her and Hancock to be true. I think at the very least they were romantically involved, if not intimately involved. Um, like Caitlin said, they often exchanged gifts with each other and were very public about these gifts. So she was given a ring by Hancock, which at that time, like, you didn't just give someone a ring. Like, it kind of meant something. And she actually wore that ring to, I believe it was FDR's inauguration. I, yeah, she wore it to multiple events. I think the, like, headlining event was, like, the inauguration. And then she would continually wear it in public. 
um, she often talked about kissing um, Hickok's picture, Good Morning and Good Night, because she couldn't do it in person. Um, and I, I believe that she was involved with Hickok. There is some speculation. At the very least, she was a friend of the community. At the time, that was very rare. And I think that's a good way to segue into her social political life because she was very, I'm sorry, people keep texting me and so my things just keep going on and it's a mess. <laughs> Nobody lets me live like by myself. Everybody be talking to me. That's probably how Eleanor Roosevelt felt, to be honest. Probably. Especially when she retired and wanted to be done. And they're like, no. it's like peace out, friends. And they're like, bitch, nah. <laughs> you thought. Um, so the and the reason why is because she had such a politic such a life full of knowledge. Like she was just such a good resource, so why not use her? So before her marriage to FDR, she was the secretary and teacher at the Junior League for the Promotion of Settlement Movements. And there she helped immigrant and lower class workers who lived in bad settlements find new locations of places to live and just advocated that their settlements be improved. A lot of her social work ends up going towards lower middle class and working class. That's where her heart seems to lie because that's a lot of what her social work um, leaned towards. She was an investigator for the Consumers League. Um, for the Consumers League, what they did is they visited tenement apartments where workers lived and worked, and it was under dangerous conditions and unhealthy conditions. Um, and in these so-called sweatshops, she also helped to create and dis dissemin disseminate bleh, publicly in the form of open letters to newspapers, press releases, and other forms of media exposure information about the Consumers League white label campaign, which the white label campaign is like a thing where they were saying, oh, we're improving our, uh, improving the quality of the locations where people work and we're making them have like reasonable pay and good hours. But she was like, nah fam, they're lying. And she was publicly explaining that. And then, Prior to World War I, she began to attend legislative sessions and to build an interest in politics, particularly um, shocked at the amount of, or wait. Omnipotence. Yes. <laughs> I'm just gonna like start over and I'll cut that out. She began to attend legislative session and to build an interest in politics, particularly shocked at the omnipotence of Tammany Hall, that so-called named entrenched Democratic Party leaders who controlled the legislative agenda and votes of state and city officials. Um, FDR actually later stated that their tenure in Albany commenced her political sagacity. So that's another good way for us to like pinpoint where a lot of her build up in build up in politics started. In World War I, she started to work for the Red Cross and the Navy Relief uh, Society, and she was very important in those organizations. They saw her as a great resource. She implored Wilson's administration at the time to, um, interior, and their interior secretary, to create a commission that conducted an investigation with the intention of improving the facility services. So again, looking to improve what was going on within workers and how workers were being treated. Um, the commission report prompted Congress to increase the hospital's budget and provide necessary care. So without that initiative, you know, it would have been still even harder for the people working in World War One. 
Mm -hmm. um, besides traditional fundraising work, she actually joined other spouses of prominent officials in booths located at Union Station in Washington, where they prepared sandwiches and coffee to give to servicemen departing by train for seaport locations. Um, and, and then in 1919, she was a translator from the International Congress of Working Women because she was able to speak French. So again, that was a pretty good resource for her to be able to um, give service. Then polio happened. So in 1921, FDR did get polio and he was paralyzed from the waist down. So after he became paralyzed, she became his full-time nurse. Everyone thought that this was the end of his political journey. His mom begged for them to end the political journey, but Eleanor Roosevelt was the main figure that continued to support him and say, no, I think you need to get better so you can get back there and you can get back to work. Um, they actually ended up hiring Missy Lehan to assume the traditional responsibilities that Eleanor as an official wife would do. So all the dinner luncheons, tea parties, all that kind of stuff that an official wife would do, she took over. So when Eleanor wasn't nursing her husband, that gave her free time to actually start um, working more on her political life. So during that time when she wasn't being the nurse, she was a part of the Women's City Club. She was part of the board of directors and the vice president. Um, she became the club's literal voice, initiating her own career in radio with broadcasts intended to make women listeners informed on current political issues affecting them, which was really important because a lot of the time um, all the politics was seen as a man's area. Reporters that were female weren't even always considered to be necessary or allowed to come into um, debriefings. She was also part of the Women's Trade Union League, so they sought to enlist more women members into trade unions, notably into the garment industry, to lobby state legislators um, in Congress on fair wages and work hours. Again, still working very hard to try and increase the safety and happiness of people in lower class positions. She was responsible. Sorry. No. Going back to her radio broadcasts, it's very similar to Fireside Chats, which her husband held while he was in office. Um, so it was just a common, a common theme between them to be very open, to be very, I want everyone to know what I'm doing so that they can voice their opinions. And I do think it is interesting that FDR is really held up on a pedestal almost. And one of the things people commend him for his fireside chats and his openness. And really that started with Eleanor. Eleanor started, obviously she didn't call them fireside chats, but radio broadcasts are all that the fireside chats were. And so it makes sense that he would use a similar tactic, but I think it's odd that he receives all the credit for it. Well, and it's important to note Not odd. that whenever a lot of her media that she did Sometimes FDR would give her information that he hadn't released yet to see how it would go over with women and people that followed her media sources more, like, more so than his, to see how they would react before he gave it out to the whole world. Um, so I think that's interesting. I mean, it makes sense. She was so popular that often if she had given one thing that upset people, they weren't going to quit following her over it. However, the presidency is a roller coaster of ups and downs. Many presidents have been hailed as champions one day and then told they should step down the next. 
weeks. So I think that was a smart move because she had a more stable career, quite frankly, a more stable following, I should say. Absolutely. Um, so whenever she was a part of the Women's Trade Union League, she was responsible actually for keeping them monetarily afloat during the worst year of the Great Depression. So they wouldn't even have survived without her support. Um, she ended up picketing with them and being charged with disorderly conduct for doing so, actually. Um, and in 1925, she testified before the New York State Legislature advocating shorter hours for each workday for women and children. So imagine, you are literally um, charging Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady to the then New York governor, and being like, so, we're going to bring you to court. And she's like, okay. I'll tell you what I have. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, these people need better working conditions. Let's go. And they're just like, okay. And you also have to think about it. She knew these city officials and she knew these courts. Like, I mean, she wasn't afraid. They probably had lunch at her house half the time. Yeah. But it is interesting. I have almost more respect for her for getting arrested because sometimes they won't arrest public officials because they don't want, like, you don't want to be the guy who arrested Eleanor Roosevelt. Like, today, you wouldn't want to be the guy who arrested, I don't even know who to, like, compare to. I guess, like, maybe Michelle Obama, but not, not as much, but at least similar. Yeah, absolutely. And then she was a part of the women's division of the New York State Democratic Committee. She was vice president for a time, and she worked as treasurer and as editor to the division's newsly, news monthly, the monthly newsletter. Um, and she eventually wrote a monthly column in the public, publication called Passing Thoughts of Miss Franklin D. Roosevelt, which was very popular. Um, as Taylor said, she was also a furniture factory owner at the time. Um, she was co-owner and a history governmental teacher at Todd Hunter School of Girls, which she really enjoyed doing, though she did have to um, step down whenever her husband became governor. Um, and as we already stated, once his polio hit and he became immobilized, she did end up substituting for him whenever he was in, unable to attend a lot of different events, political meetings and conferences. Um, despite her reputation as an overly political person, she drew a line when it came to speaking on his behalf and would not go beyond marking personal experiences with him um, for his 1936, 1940, and 1944 presidential campaigns, which at some times does get her a lot of criticisms because uh, whenever she would do things for him after he would be reappointed as president. They would say, we didn't vote for you to be our president. We voted for him. Why are you doing things? But she took those things with a grain of salt, basically. Um, and like Taylor said also, he, she was considered to be more politically popular at a time of um, his presidential runs. So not only did people like him, but it was very important that they liked her because she was able to kind of transition her followers to following him whenever he was not always as vocal or seen doing things in politics. Mm -hmm. So once he became president, uh, things got a lot 
more different for her because she didn't want him to be become president. She wrote in her biography, she did not, she saw what had happened to her aunt whenever Theodore Roosevelt became president. And she was like, it's terrible. All you do is do housewifely duties. Like you make tea and you have house parties and you have to figure out what color you want the drapes to be. And she's like, I need more. So when he became president, she quickly determined that this was not going to be the way she lived her life. She was going to be a different type of first lady. Um, this was fairly controversial at the time. I mean, every lady before this had just shown up, picked the drapes out, picked the tea sandwiches out. Yeah. And she blatantly said, this is not how our life has been up to this point. I'm not going to change because you want to pursue a passion. Oh, yeah. And I mean, she was very honest with people that she wanted to live a life like everybody else because she thought it was not fair for the president to live a life of luxury when there were people struggling. So she tried when she could to, uh, I guess, bring themselves back down to earth for mm -hmm. lack of a better term. And I think that's really important. And that's a lot of how they got through a lot of the two big national traumatic events that they went through, which would have been the Great Depression and World War II. And I think that's why people supported them so much through those times and why they were able to help, even though it was a very horrible situation. Furthermore, due to her husband's illness, not only did she have um, her first lady duties that she had created for herself, but she was also a part of his staff as an unofficial administration representative and an on policy and on, and on policy related issues. So I think it's really important to note that she was busy. She was busy. No wonder whenever he passed did she want to be removed from the political limelight. Um, her activities were widely covered in the media in the 20s, making her more publicly recognizable than her husband, especially because he was never seen because of his illness. Um, during her tenure as First Lady, it is estimated she gave about 1,400 speeches, um, and these were a lot um, about a wide range of topics, including social issues important to her agenda as a presidential spouse and or a paid lecturer. She wrote thousands of columns and 27 books. She is the most, um, pub, uh, most, I'm trying to think, a, a lot of first ladies have written books. She is the most, she has written the most and done the most as far as writing columns and any kind of literature work. Um, and she participated in hundreds of radio shows as well, which was very different than any other first lady. She embraced the media instead of disliking them. Um, and I'm going to put a picture somewhere here in the video, if you're watching the video, of all the different locations where her publications were included, because it is just astronomical, the amount of people that supported her and organizations that supported her. And it's kind of funny because a lot of the different newsletters that supported her, continued to support her, even when her husband was running for re-election, which made people think they weren't bipartisan. But the thing is, they knew that if they got rid of her column, their reading readers and the amount of people reading their uh, newspaper would decline. So they said, we're not being uh, bipartisan. We just know she's going to be listened to and we don't want to lose her funding. Two days into her husband's term, she started hosting her own press conferences for only female journalists, which was very important at the time because during the Great Depression, uh, women were being cut off from certain jobs. And she 
saw that and she didn't want to see women being excluded from another location. So she said, I'm going to be having my own press conferences. Men will not be allowed in. And so that meant that newspapers, if they wanted to hear what was being said at her press conferences, were going to have to at least have one journalist on their staff who was female. So she held over 340 of these meetings during her, during her time as first lady. And the practice proved crucial in establishing women reporters as prominent in modern white press corps or White House press corps figures and their presence and professionalism soon became part of the familiar fabric of the working White House. And you see that today, you see that there are different women in the uh, press room during debriefings and they ask the questions. And I don't think that that would have been as a uh, accepted thing as early on had it not been for Eleanor Roosevelt allowing women to be in these debriefing sessions. I don't think, had it not been for Eleanor Roosevelt holding female-only debriefing sessions, I actually don't think women would have been as popular in the field of journalism. I feel like it would have remained a male-dominated field because it was common to say, typically if the woman's working, the husband's also working, so we're keeping men on staff and we're releasing women because it's assumed that they have a husband at home who's also earning money, they're not the breadwinner which wasn't always true. And so that was common, not just in the field of journalism, everywhere. You released your women first, and then, you know, you released your children, then you released your women, then you cut men if you had to. And so I think journalism started fairly male-dominated, and then women began to integrate. And I think that it's really pushed it to the other spectrum where now journalism is seen as a female-dominated industry, which sometimes it's not taken as seriously because it's female dominated, but I really think that had these meetings not occurred, women would have been pushed out of journalism and then had to fight back for that role. And so it wouldn't be as female dominated today. I agree. Because of all these different forms of being media, not media, socially active in the media, she became the most politically active and publicly active and most influential, I would say, first lady in history. She used her position to advance many of her progressive and egalitarian goals. She lobbied her husband to appoint more women to government positions, which was successful. Um, and she even secured Frances Perkins as the first woman to the head of the Department of Labor, among many others. So not only was she changing what the first lady meant, but she was starting to change what it meant to be a woman in the White House for all different types mm -hmm. of positions. She became an advocate for the rights and needs of the poor, of minorities, and of the disadvantaged. And in August of 1933, five months after becoming First Lady, she con contracted with the monthly Women's Home Companion magazine to pen a column called, I Want You to Write to Me. Um, and this was an open invitation for the public to submit questions, asking her questions that provoked her advice, personal opinions, and providing information on issues both personal and political, which was unheard of. That would be, you know, because nobody usually gets to have a conversation with people in charge unless you are in charge somehow or you, you know, go through the ladder. For somebody who is just a housewife in, I don't know, Kentucky to be able to write the president's wife and for her to possibly, you know, more than possibly respond was major. Yeah, I mean, for her to have the intention to respond, I'm sure she didn't respond to all letters, oh, no. but the intention is there and it's usually not. So oh. that is incredibly impressive. 
within the first five months, she had 300,000 individuals write to her. So she, oh, she sure did not write them all. I would, I would hope not for her, her hand's sake. But um, she also encouraged the public to offer their own opinions and observations during the Great Depression and war preparedness years because she wanted to make sure that they were properly representing what the American people needed. She did earn money for this endeavor and she donated all of it to various charities. And it was very much like the public responded well to her. They liked that she was doing this and they loved the fact that she was not making any money off of it and she was taking the money and giving it to other people in need. Um, another reason why the public was so drawn to her was she started to do a syndicated column called My Day. And she began writing that column in 1935, so two years after the one that we just talked about ended. Um, and that continued until her death in 1962. So she wrote it six days a week and only took a break whenever um, her husband actually passed away. That was the only time she took a break from writing in it. Um, within three years, that column was in 62 daily newspapers with a readership of over 4 million, which is crazy. That means she is like, I don't know. That means she's like a common, that, that uh, my day column was probably a common household name that you could just say, I'm reading my day and someone would know what you mean. And I think it's important. This really prefaces social media. So now politicians have an easy way to quickly communicate with a large number of people. During this time, there wasn't social media. And so there was sort of a communication gap you know, even just publishing in a newspaper, you're missing a large portion of the population who was illiterate. Schooling wasn't common. For most people in rural areas, you went to school to a, to a point to learn basic skills, and then you started farming, or you started working on ship docks. Not everyone was educated, and so my day was an easily accessible piece to the large number of the population, she couldn't reach with my day she often supplemented with radio broadcasts yeah so she was really making sure to get everyone yes um and although my day was usually placed in the women's section of the newspaper um they were widely read by men especially those following politics so she was reaching more than just women with her communications and then we get into racial equality. So throughout her life, she was shown to be very much an advocate for racial equality, but a lot of different things came about in World War II that I wanted to touch upon. So in World War II, she worked to increase the equal rights for black officers at the Carnegie Air Force site. So she actually went there and she insisted that she go up with a black pilot to ensure that he was given an opportunity to be deployed, which was something that was not being offered to um, black officers at the time. She also went to the front lines in Europe to show support for soldiers and called families on their behalf to thank them for their service. So she called a bunch of people and a bunch of families, which was also, again, very unheard of for her to be reaching out to the common person to say thank you for your service and thank you for your whoever's service in your family. She was very against the Jim Crow laws and was known to sit between segregated sections and seating rooms to show her opposition. And there's actually a famous picture of her that they were taking. I forget what conference they were at but it was split and she requested that there be a, ta a 
a chair in the middle of the aisle for her to sit in to show that she was not going to be pressured into being segregated. And I think it's important to note that she always sat in the middle. She didn't take the seat of a black person. Yes. Because sometimes when white people would advocate for ending segregation, they would sit in the black section, which the point is very similar, but you are taking a person of color seat when you do that. So I think I always found it very impressive that she sat between. She would not take a seat from them. Yes. And in 1939, this was like one of the big forms of statements on her opinion about racial inequality that I found to be very inspiring. Um, She was a part of the Daughters of the American Revolution organization, and the organization denied Marian Anderson to come and perform for them because she was black. And so in part of her column at the time, she wrote a letter stating that she will no longer be a part of the Daughters of the American Revolution organization. And she established a concert at the Lincoln Memorial for Marian Anderson, which had like 40,000 people in attendance. So that was pretty wild that she not only resigned from the organization, but did it so publicly. And then also went even further to have her own concert, to have this woman come and perform. Yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine waking up one day and just reading the newspaper and being like, oh, no. Especially imagine the people who were in charge of that organization. For them to have the vice president, or the president of the United States' wife, a part of your organization, and then to her not only resign from your organization, but to do it in a newsletter, that's like the... That's like, I don't know, that would be like the president of the United States deciding that he no longer wants to support, I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to think of something like similar. It would be like me if I didn't want to be trustee anymore for the university and instead of going to like my higher ups and saying I'm no longer interested in serving me instead just being like, I'm gonna put it in the Clarion newspaper and I'm gonna throw a party afterward that's gonna be a public party also. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's what it's like. Um, so that was a really big intervention on her behalf for the uh, racial equality and inequality that she saw. Um, The first lady also vigorously and unapologetically pressed the president to support a proposed anti-lynching law. However, this failed to pass due to FDR's practical realization that Southern Democrats might abandon his ongoing and future legislative agenda. She did, yeah, boo. And I mean, I really appreciated multiple times throughout the presidency of FDR, Eleanor went publicly and said, I don't agree with my husband, and I'm going to find other people that I can rally for, like, in opposition that are going to fight for this. That shows guts that you're not going to stand with your husband, who is the president, even though, you know, she stood exactly what for what is right. If she didn't believe what he was doing was right, she called him on it. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So she sought support for that bill elsewhere. Um, such as the Association of Southern Women for the Prevention of Lynching, but that all ultimately did not pass, which is sad. 
but she did try. Then World War II happened. So her husband was still unable to travel because of his paralysis. So she actually did do um, some traveling to be his eyes and ears, as they would call it. So she would go and she would observe what was happening in the world and what the American people thought and what they saw and decided like how they were perceiving what was happening overseas. So then she could take it to him to explain to him what are the social issues going on in the country. Um, these ultimately inspired his position as, as president, president and helped him establish some thoughts in the New Deal along with other issues that he was going to do throughout the war. Um, although the job was unsalaried, Eleanor Roosevelt became the first woman um, first lady to assume an official working position during her incumbency um, when she went to work as an assistant director to the Office of Civilian Defense in 1941. So again, breaking down barriers, not only were women not supposed to be having jobs, but she's also the first lady and she's like, no, I'm going to work alongside being the first lady. She was also the first national figure to speak out after the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Um, she spoke with the people about what this would mean in terms of changes of normal life and particularly um, what would happen in for women and men of enlistment age. So not, it wasn't the president who talked about it first, it was the wife, which is really important. Um, and like we've been saying about how she tried to make sure that they were down to earth and understanding where the people of America were coming from with their concerns. Um, she tried to step into the, sho the shoes of others very frequently, whether as a mother of four sons who were active servicemen, she tried to see their perspective because she was in that perspective. Um, she put the entire White House system on the same food and gas rationing system as the rest of the country during the war, which I think is very cool because I can't imagine a president today that would allow that or would like be like, oh no, we need to ensure that we are suffering just as much as like a common person, you know, because we're all in this together. Um, she participated in air raids and learning how to use a gas mask, and she made certain that her life in the White House mirrored that of the general population. So I think that's really um, honorable, really, that she would go forward and try to ensure that they were going through what a normal American person would, because I bet that really did help inspire how they would stand on political and social issues. And I'm sure it boosted morale. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine what they endured regardless, but I think it would be even harder to look at the person saying to you, you need to practice air raids, you need to teach your children how to put gas masks on, you get one jug of food every two weeks, or one jug of milk every two weeks, or whatever the ration was, but then to see them still hosting tea parties and still luncheons and and they weren't. They were still hosting press conferences. They were often holding that, but that was really their only big event during World War II. That's what was happening with Marie Antoinette. That's what why their the French revolted. You know, it was the fact that they were in poverty. They were just being taxed more, and the uh, French regime was just still having expensive and lavish events. You know, so I think it's it's really important that for morale's sake that. Um, FDR and Eleanor followed these practices. Um, the American First Lady was unrelenting and a harsh critic about uh, Adolf Hitler and Mussolini. So while we see that as really great, they did not see that as really great. And so they would attack her a lot in broadcasts and in state-controlled media to, 
um, evacerate her in cartoons and editorials, which she didn't care about. I also think it's important to note we got involved in World War II. We did not get involved in World War II because we were like, oh, these people are bad people. They need to be stopped. We got involved in World War II because they bombed Pearl Harbor. Right. Say, say what you want about whether that was the right decision or not. That's not the discussion here. My discussion here is simply that. Eleanor Roosevelt was one of the first and the harshest critics of Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. They weren't seeing, I mean, they were seeing opposition, clearly it was a war, but they weren't seeing as much opposition from people who weren't involved in the war. And I mean, I think that's really important, just like we said before, she didn't care if the president or anybody else disagreed with her. She fought for what was right, and she wasn't willing to stay silent if she felt that there was something that needed addressed just like that and i think that's why the you know it seems silly that they mussolini and adolf hitler would even spend the time to you know encourage columnists and stuff to make jokes about eleanor roosevelt i think they were threatened by her so too but they didn't want to make it seem that they could be threatened by a woman at the time and so that's why it's just interesting to me that they would take the time to deal with it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep, and then she also kept a long view on decisions that would affect post-war life as well. So she opposed FDR, for example, who supported the construction of temporary housing structures that would be destroyed after their use. She believed that the structures should be made to last so that they could later aid public housing needs. So that she always thought about the lower class and what the lower class needed and how they could benefit them, which I find very respectable. Um, sorry, give me a second here. You're good. Worked in World War II? Yeah, but we are, I already said that. I'm trying to wonder. Oh. Um. I'll just go to lobbied. Okay. So she also lobbied for the approval of immigrants to come to America to escape Nazi oppression. She was hearing from cousins and different people that actually lived overseas because she had friends there from her schooling and also, um, during her life before her father passed, they actually put him in a sanitarium over there in France, and that's where they went to stay at one point. So she had friends overseas, and they were telling her about the oppression and the treatment of the Jewish people, and she was very upset about it. So she had stated that her inability to convince the president to allow more people into the country during the Holocaust was her biggest regret as First Lady, which I find to be, I like it whenever people can say that they've done wrong, or they recognize their failures because I think that goes to show a lot of personal growth and humility that a lot of people don't have anymore or enough oh, for sure. mm -hmm. um she also did a road trip with Ludmila Pavlichenko which that is how you say it I looked it up who was a woman Russian <laughs> extraordinaire so when Ludmila Pavlichenko was supposed to come to the White House, they didn't know she was going to be a woman, and she came, and they were like, wow, this is your best Russian sharpshooter, and they're like, yes, in Russia, 
we are not like divided on the front lines based on sex and they thought it was so inspirational so um they actually asked her to go on a tour with eleanor roosevelt to push the american people to join the second front and this actually did work they were inspired by her and um how she was 25 years old a woman and still being a badass on the front lines So you may be wondering how Eleanor got herself onto our part podcast, other than being a complete badass. She was involved in the suffrage movement. Um, she was not involved leading up to it. Um, there is some speculation as to why. Again, she was still struggling with some self-confidence issues, not feeling adequate upon her return home. But after its passage, she actually became very involved with the suffragette movement. So even though most of the legwork had been done, there were still things that needed to happen. Women had to get registered. You had to keep women informed of voting practices. And so she was very involved in that. And so that's how she's made an appearance here in the suffragette season and not just in a general season. So one thing she became very involved in was the League of Women Voters, um, which we've mentioned a couple times on here before. She was the board member of the and the legislative committee chair um, for New York State League. She served as the constitutional revision revision chair as this on the state league, and as a county delegate, state delegate, and vice chair of the New York State League. She was. She was very busy, and you can see she was constantly moving her position, and there are advantages and disadvantages to that. So she was moving her position as she felt more comfortable accepting a new role. Unfortunately, you do lack some experience in those chairs when you first start, but she really had no issue catching up. Um, as vice chair of the State League, she advocated for women's support of international peace, gender equity, and jury service and prosecution of solicitation. So solicitation is like prostitution. Mm -hmm. um, and it was called solicitation because you're soliciting someone, you're asking them to pay you for a service. And so um, Eleanor Roosevelt was opposed to solicitation um, and to sex workers as a practice. This wasn't uncommon at the time. Um, they were really kind of seen as less than people. Um, so she advocated a lot for equity and international peace, and this will become very important later on. She joined the Women's Trade Union League, which um, worked more so for women's rights in working environments, which is still important to women's suffrage because remember they weren't, the suffrage movement didn't have its own money. Their women received an allowance from their husbands. And so she worked with the Women's Trade Union League to get them positions in, um, in career fields. She also, as a suffragette, worked on the World Peace Movement and the Bach Peace Prize Committee. So through this, she was exposed to the efforts of world peace um, through her work with suffragist Oh, Carrie Chapman Cat. <laughs> um, so this committee she served on sought to award the best plan that would ensure eventual world peace and get the U.S. to participate in a global justice system. So this had been discussed for years. Um, the United Nations wouldn't start until, I believe it was 1945 it started. But this was a mission of... 
Yeah, it was after the war had already been a thing. Yeah. Um, so it was a goal of the U.S. even before then. Um, this committee reviewed over 22,000 entries um, that they received and then promote the winning plan $100,000. Which is a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, in that time, that was huge. That doesn't seem like a lot, but if you remember, the $100 fine that Susan B. Anthony received translated to roughly $3,500. So you're talking, I think, millions. I think you would hit a million with that. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, but regardless, you're getting a lot of money to implement this plan. She was also the head of the Women's Division of the Democratic National Committee, which we talked about earlier. Um, so she was a suffragette. She may not have been a suffragette in the same aspect as Susan B. Anthony, but I also think it's important that your movement has to have follow through. You can't just get your goal and end. You need to then adjust your goal so that you can continue to grow as a movement. Um, so as we said, she was very devoted to world peace. And so even though she sought retirement from politics after the passing of FDR, Harry S. Truman reached out to her in 1945 and asked her to become the U.S. delegate to the United Nations General Assembly. Um, this is impressive to me because I compete on a model United Nations team. Um, so I thought it was really cool and thought it should be included. Um, so she was appointed in 1945. She was somewhat hesitant at first to accept the job for two reasons, really. Um, one is she had sought retirement and she wanted to be finished. But the second was that she feared that she was too inexperienced to join the delegation. Um, she lacked a lot of international relations. She dealt a lot with relating to U.S. citizens and relating to the general public, not so much you know, reaching out to, um, who was the British guy? <laughs> oh, Churchill, Winston Churchill. Yes. yes. Oh, she wasn't reaching out to him. I'm like, she I was, which guy you meant, but yeah, Winston Churchill would have been the private time. I wanted to call him the bulldog, which like was his nickname, but I was like, eh, I need his name. Um, so she was hesitant, and this goes back to lacking self-esteem, likely from such critical early upbringing, um, but she did eventually become the first woman to represent the United States as a delegate to the United Nations. Um, all of her other delegates were men, so they were unsure of how to take having a woman in the delegation. Even though Eleanor Roosevelt was highly revered, they were hesitant. Because of this, they assigned her to Committee 3. So for those of you who don't know how the United Nations works, you have your General Assembly, and then within your General Assembly, you have three to four committees. Um, so your first committee is fairly political. Your second committee is more the financial aspect of the General Assembly. Third committee deals with humanitarian, economic, and cultural questions, um, while the fourth committee deals with legal matters. So they were fearful that Eleanor wouldn't speak up and fight for the U.S.'s policies and agendas they wanted to push. And so they felt she could do the least harm in Committee 3. Um, so she was assigned here and kind of understood that they put her there because they anticipated her sitting back. And so that really motivated her um, to show them that they underestimated her. 
So she used a lot of diplomatic and rhetorical skills to win the right of self-determination for war refugees who face the danger of forced reparation to their home countries. So um, what this means is, so if you were a war refugee and you fled from Germany to England, after the Holocaust, there were still issues in Germany that hadn't been resolved. And so repatriation to your home country would be just sending you back to Germany, not helping you, not providing a social worker, just shipping you off, saying goodbye. Um, Self-determination allows for these refugees to say, I don't feel comfortable returning, or to say, I'm comfortable returning, but I want to hold off for a couple days or a couple weeks. Um, And that's actually still discussed in the United Nations today, what we do with war refugees and how we handle them. Um, How do we decide it now? Or like, what does the typical conversation look like right now? So it's mostly done country by country. Um, The encouragement from the United Nations. um, So I have competed two years in New York City. I prepared for a third year of competition and then Corona hit. And New York City was like, please don't come, (laughs) please stay home. So, but when I served on committee three for the competition team, um, the discussion was that it's best to allow them to return home, but to provide them with social workers and to do it over a slow exposure process. So they go back for a day and check everything out and then they come back to where they feel safe. And then they stay for a weekend and check everything out and come back to where they feel safe. It shouldn't immediately be, okay, your civil war's over, your country's been decimated, please leave. There's the door. Goodbye. Um, It needs to be a... hmm? That would be very shocking. Yes, it needs to be a slow process. They also recommend assigning social workers as soon as a refugee comes in because there is a lot of trauma that comes with living in a country like that. Um, So that's their official position now. It wasn't always their official position, um, but Eleanor Roosevelt really helped cement it. Her reputation for hard work and skillful debate earned her an appointment as the United States representative on the newly created United Nations Human Rights Commission um this is a huge commission to serve on it was a huge um undertaking really that they sought to draft um a document that secured human rights to everyone and so eleanor would later say that it was her work on the human rights commission that she considered to be her most important task so of everything we discussed previously She felt that this was her biggest calling and really almost her grand finale to politics. Um, Other members of the Human Rights Commission elected Roosevelt as chairperson and she worked hard to push the committee's work along as quickly as possible. So um, for reference, United Nations, Model United Nations takes about a week to compete. You spend a week drafting resolutions to an issue you're given. Sometimes it's refugees, sometimes it's how are we solving the situation in Yemen. And so you draft these resolutions and push them along. A week is nowhere near how long it usually takes a resolution to get passed because it has to go through so many people. Eleanor Roosevelt was so highly revered for her debate skills and was known by so many, it was much easier for her to push these things through. And debate skills are a huge thing for the United Nations. You have to be able to not only give criticism, but also take criticism. And Eleanor Roosevelt has never had an issue taking criticism. 
So as chair um, of the committee, the committee decided to focus on drafting an international bill of rights um, in direct reference to the American Bill of Rights, which the General Assembly would actually adopt in the form of declaration. And it does not say bill of rights in there because you want to remain as neutral as possible. The US isn't the most popular country. And so sometimes making something US centric, you can alienate people who feel that they've been wronged by the United States. Even though that specific allegation hasn't wronged them, it is just attention. Um, the result of these this hard work was the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which we discussed when we talked about her being an LGBTQ plus ally. Um, this declaration sets the standard required of all nations for the treatment of their citizens. It is thought to be one of the greatest undertakings of the United Nations, and it's referenced constantly. So when you join Clarion's Model United Nations team, we give you a printout of the Declaration of Human Rights and we say, hey, you have to understand like what this means because you're going to reference it constantly. Um, and obviously Model UN and the real UN aren't exactly the same. I don't know everything she went through. I just have a general understanding of how it works. Um, but like I said, it's a very condensed timeline. So on December 10th, 1948, the United Nations General Assembly all the committees voted to adopt the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And at the conclusion of the vote, all the assembled delegates rose to their feet to give Eleanor Roosevelt a standing ovation. Important to note, I believe there were 48 yes votes. There were no no votes, but there were, oh, maybe it was 43 yes votes. Regardless, there were eight abstentions. So no one voted against it. However, some people did not vote for it. Um, so because of her work with the Declaration of Human Rights and with the United Nations in general, she's often referred to as First Lady of the World. Um, and so Truman really started this for her when he recognized her lifelong humanitarian achievements and referenced her as First Lady of the World. And it kind of just sucked because she really did go from um, the First Lady of New York to the First Lady of the United States and really did represent the world with the drafting of the Declaration of Human Rights. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we didn't even touch upon like, she was a fashion icon. She was an icon in other senses of the word too. She just lived such a full life. Now that we know all of that about her, we will move to discussion questions. So discussion question number one. If Eleanor Roosevelt ran for president today, do you think she could win? So my thought on this isn't just that it's just Eleanor Roosevelt, it's everyone Eleanor Roosevelt was in contact with. Um, so not just Eleanor Roosevelt lived to be 200 years old, so did FDR and so did Lorena Hickcock and really everyone who helped Roosevelt become who she was. I think of all the women we have seen run, she would likely have the best shot. I think so too. So I think she would face two hindrances really. Um, one, she is a woman and women have a much harder time running for president as we've discussed with a couple people. Um, the other issue I think she would face is people would look at the Lorena Hickok affair, um, whether it was intimate or, or just romantic, if you are a minority, it is a much bigger uphill battle. And so I think um, this year there was an openly gay man in the presidential campaign. 
And though he had some good ideas and some not great ideas, everyone criticized him for his homosexuality. Is the world ready for a gay president? And so I think if she could keep the affair under wraps, she could win. Um, I think if she couldn't, it would be much, much harder. Yeah, I agree. I think of all the people we've talked about and all women in general who have run for president, I think she is the most qualified for the job because she has lived such a political life of work. Like she's done so much. Like we didn't even touch on all the different committees and things she worked on and not to mention she was part of the model or not model. She was a part of the United Nations, the real one. So like she definitely would have the best chances but again, those, it's sad because like if she had those chances and she wasn't a man or if she was, if she was a man, she wasn't a woman, it's like a no brainer that she would definitely become president or have a very good shot at becoming president. But because of a lot of, especially during like the beginning of an election, people focus so much on the person. And if there's something they don't like about them, that's all you hear about. You don't get to hear about their policies. You hear about their clothes or how they look or their family life and their family scandals and things like that. Like whenever we were younger, for example, and we were going through the election of Barack Obama and John McCain and he picked uh, Sarah Palin. Yeah, like, we talked so much about the fact that her daughter had a teenage pregnancy, and it's like, why did that even have anything to do with anything, you know? It has nothing to do with her policies, not saying one way or the other about her, but, like, that's something that was always talked about, instead of, like, how is she as a politician? Yeah, and I feel like women often face that more often than men. People can look past um, men's personal traits and look to, like, oh... This is their policy. With women, it is very much how did she raise her home? How did she raise her children? You know, oh, she wasn't she was a working mother. Like that doesn't matter. It it genuinely doesn't. To be president, it doesn't mean anything. Hillary Clinton's pantsuits. That was a huge conversation point during the last presidential election. You know, we never talked about Trump's whatever he wore you know but we did talk about her pantsuits and it's like why and I mean we saw it with President Obama the tan suit fiasco yeah you know he wore a tan suit to the guard what does it matter like straight up unless the back of his suit had like a vulgar word on it or mentioned a slur of some kind I don't care what he's wearing like or if he's naked if he comes out naked I'm like are you okay <laughs> do you like need some time because you can take it yeah, I definitely think she is qualified, but she would just have an uphill battle. Yeah, I mean, I would like to see a woman president elected at some point. I think it's really sad that the first woman would be elected in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. But especially because, I, like, everybody always says, like, how could a woman deal? I I hate when people say, how could a woman president like be able to figure anything out? And I'm like, well, if we look at history. All wars are started by men. It's not even just, like, yes, you're correct. (laughs) Like, most major wars, I don't know of a war that was started by a woman. But I also think it's just this idea of seeing women as incompetent, which isn't fair. Like, 
lots of men have gotten into the White House and not known what they were doing and left the White House and didn't know what they were doing when they left. They were just like, oh, okay, I'm gone. Goodbye. I don't know what happened, but like I was here for four years. And we're like, thank you. So like, I don't think it's a valid concern. Yeah, I agree. Question number two. Would Eleanor Roosevelt be happy with the representation in today's government? So I went through and actually found a makeup of the current, well, of the 116th Congress. So there are 535 members of Congress all the time. There are 435 members of the House of Representatives and 100 members of the Senate. So I just took both chambers of Congress. So in the 116th Congress, there were 56 Black Congress members, 43 Hispanic Congress members, 17 Asian Congress members, four Native American Congress members, and 415 white Congress members. So, I don't know if you're looking at these ratios, but they're not great. And this is not, please don't say this is representative of the US population because there's roughly, the ratio of white to minority is roughly 20% higher in Congress than it is in the United States. So please don't be like, like obviously to fairly represent, you're going to have more of one ethnicity or of one race than another because it's not an equal split, but that doesn't mean you need over 400 white people. As a white person saying this, we don't. I know what white people My are like. My biggest issue with this is that there's only four Native American people, and there are big issues happening with Native American lands in this country, and us taking advantage of holy lands pipe to put pipeline in and different things like that, and it's really sad that we they don't get equal representation. And I will say, um, just disclaimer, if there were biracial people elected to this Congress, they asked them which they identified with. So it is possible that there is a white person with Native American ancestry who just felt they more aligned with white people. Um, but that's not, like, unless there's a hundred people who were like, oh, we're just picking white, it's just not acceptable. Um, Regarding the sexual orientation makeup, there were three lesbians, five gay men, two bisexuals, and 522 heterosexual members of Congress. So I will say these are only accounting for open members of Congress, not just everyone. Um, but still, again, unless there's like 300 people who are still in the closet, unacceptable. Regarding gender, gender identity, there are 131 women, three transgender people, and it did not specify um, male to female or female to male. It just made them their own category. Um, and 401 men. To clarify, it's thought that women represent 60% of the US population. And I would really love, I wish that they had this information, how much of um, House of Representatives and the Senate together are white heterosexual men. Like, I would like to see that. I want to see those statistics. Yeah, um, that one was not provided. I got this information from Pew Research. 
it wasn't provided there. I'm sure it's available somewhere. I just didn't think to look for it. So reflecting on this makeup that is mostly white, mostly heterosexual, and mostly men, would Eleanor Roosevelt be happy with the representation in today's government? I'm gonna give that a big fat no. I think she would be incredibly disappointed. So looking at this, we now have 131 women involved in Congress. Um, that's abysmal, truly, it, it truly is. Well, yeah, because you'd need at least three times the amount of women for, if you had a women's, I don't know. I like, it's like what we talked about before, like obviously men can be feminists, but for women to advocate for women's issues is crucial because we understand more than anybody else what is needed and why it is needed. So it's like very upsetting that there are so many, not so many, so few women being given the, being included in the conversation. And again, being an ally does not mean you can fairly represent the struggle of whoever you're an ally to, if you are not a part of that community. So I'm sure some of these men elected are feminists. I'm sure some of them want equal rights, but you are not advocating for it better than a woman. And I, I don't think she would be happy with it. I think she would con consistently campaign to increase the number of women on. Yeah, just like she did with people, women being in the White House as officials. I think it would be the same thing. She would push for more inclusion. Mm-hmm. So the last question, do you think the world would have still considered her the most influ influential woman had they known her status as a possible bisexual? I think it would have been a huge controversy and I think it would have discredited her from all of the good work she did in a lot of ways. So I agree. Um, I think at the time she would not have had the influence she had, um, had people known. I think today, um, she may be more recognized today than we think, just because there is a big movement to look back at history and say, this person needs to be recognized, not just because they are a member of a minority community, but because they did impressive things while being a member. And so there is a push um, today to recognize people who were forgotten in history. I mean, this podcast is an example. We often, when we talk about suffragettes, we hear about Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, two white women who were born fairly privileged, privileged lives. Um, we do occasionally hear about Sojourner Truth, but we do not hear about some of the women we've discussed here today. Um, so I do think there is a push currently to recognize people who were forgotten in history, um, I actually think she would not have been influential because I don't think FDR could have won the presidency had they known his wife was bisexual. I think so too. And I mean, what I was saying too, like, I just know that um, there is still a lot, like, compared to other um, people in the LGBTQ plus spectrum, bisexuals, I would say along, like, right behind transgender people, transgender people are off, obviously, the most, um, attacked 
for lack of a better word. Um, but I think bisexuals are right there behind them because they're seen as almost untrue, I guess would be the way to phrase it. They're not given the, the dignity and the trying to think of how I want to say this. They're not recognized as being. So there's a lot of, um, speaking from experience, there's a lot of, if you're in a heteronormative relationship, you're not part of the community because people see you and they don't immediately associate you as being part of this community. So you don't face oppression in the same way that transgender members or, um, hetero or homosexual members because they are constantly being seen as different and there's also this idea that even when you do as a bisexual have a homosexual relationship um there's this idea that then you're just gay you're not bisexual and so it's this idea that your sexuality is called into question with every relationship you have you know and some people speak a lot about this you know if you are bisexual but you end up marrying a man people often tell you you just need to identify as straight because you aren't and i will be the first to admit that when you're in a heteronormative couple you aren't experiencing the same slurs and um you know invasive questions you know when you're with a guy no one's saying oh which one of you is the top which one of you is the bottom it's just assumed and so I'm not going to say that they're the same struggle, but it is still this idea that you are constantly being called into question, sometimes by your own community. And I think that's what I kind of was trying to get at. I'm really glad you said it because it gave me a second, like validity was the word I was looking for. Mm -hmm. Give validity to people that are bisexual because they're seen as just being not not identifying the way they should and i that is what i've seen like through social media and through conversations with people that um the lgbtq plus community doesn't seem to be as um supportive yeah and i mean i've been told just personally that um like being bisexual is just being gay with internal homophobia so you don't want to commit and that's not true that's not what it is you don't like that's not how it works and so to have members of the community who are you who you're trying to look up to and reference as um how to conduct yourself and how to advocate properly to see them exclude you is very harmful and i think i think it would have been easier had eleanor roosevelt been gay yeah yeah that like too. I think that that if she were alive today and running, I think that that would be a more of a hindrance to her. Not only the fact that she's on the spectrum, but also being bisexual. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, that was Eleanor Roosevelt. I am super happy you guys voted for her because I'm, I was waiting to talk about her because I think she's just such an interesting lady. There is still so much information out there about her, so I totally recommend you go and do your own research if you want to hear more about her life and struggles. Who are we talking about next week? Okay, so next week, no special guest, unfortunately. We will be covering Alice Paul. Alice Paul was an active suffragette and one of the first people to propose an equal rights amendment. Um, 
1912, Paul and her friends organized a women's march to coincide with Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. This is because Wilson refused to speak on the idea of women's suffrage. When that event commenced the following March that Paul had put forward, Paul and her suffragettes were so prominent that male onlookers insulted and assaulted the women marchers as the police looked on and did not intervene. Um, we will discuss the mistreatment Paul endured while she fought for this cause she believed in. We will also discuss that her later imprisonment and how it likely led to Woodrow Wilson endorsing women's suffrage. Yes. Um, if you are interested in looking at a movie about her life before the podcast, um, I definitely re uh, recommend Iron, Iron Jawed Angels. It's a good movie. All right. Well, this has been Wednesday's Women, and I want to thank everybody for coming again, and we will see you next week. Goodbye. This has been Wednesday's Women, sponsored by the Clarion University CU Engaged Coalition. The thoughts and ideas presented in this podcast are meant to be for entertainment purposes first and foremost, and we do not claim to be experts in any field. As always, thanks for listening, and make sure you go out and register to vote.